the tradition it's so wonderful at the minute because it's so well looked after and there are so many young people playing it to such a high standard um that that's just wonderful you know that it that it it it's it has the respect that it deserves within musicians in Ireland <laughs> Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Hi, I'm Joe McHugh. What does it mean to look after a tradition? Perhaps it is like tending a garden. You begin by turning and sifting the soil, and then you plant your seeds, you provide the water, you wait, and when at last the tender sprouts reach up for the sunlight, you get on your knees and you pull up the weeds. You fertilize the soil and pick the unwanted insects from off the leaves. Maybe you even talk to your flowers and tomato plants. And why not? The garden can sense your love. And a musical tradition can sense our love as well. Or at least that's what I took away from my conversation with a young fiddler named Zoe Conway who lives in Ireland. Paul and I visited that fair isle in the autumn of 2017. We were there to perform a series of concerts and to interview people for the Rosin the Bow project. We caught up with Zoe at the Clifton Arts Festival, which is held each September in Connemara. One of the highlights of the festival was a performance by the RTE Orchestra featuring Sir James Galway on the flute. Zoe was also part of the concert, performing a piece of music composed by Bill Whalen who also wrote and directed the music for Riverdance. Later, back at the hotel, while festival goers and performers were crowding their way into the bar, Zoe and I found a small office in which to have our chat. Um, so I was born in uh, Dundalk in County Louth, and I've lived there my whole life, and I live quite close to there now. And uh, My parents actually never learned to play any instruments, but their parents had played traditional music. And so they carried the love of the traditional music in them. And they really wanted for their children to be able to play something because they weren't able to. So it kind of seemed to have skipped a generation, really, and then came to us. Um, But I was lucky. Um, My father and mother were kind of searching a bit and they didn't really have much knowledge of traditional music and how it should be taught and what you need to do and how many hours you had to put in and how much an instrument cost and all of that um, so they kind of figured that out with the oldest child and it kind of filtered down and I was child number four so by the time I was born um, my oldest sister was 10 and she was playing a uh, fiddle already so I was surrounded by music from I was really a baby traditional music and I think that made the difference for me to be you know totally at ease with traditional music and to be surrounded by it even though you might say it wasn't really in my family um for that long so um that's really where the fiddle playing came from um was really through my oldest sister who's a very very good fiddle player And did you ever come across a story or anecdote of someone back generation two generations who either might have played the violin or maybe 
repaired them or made them or traded them, anything like that. In in the family? In the family. Well, my, actually, my grandfather, who passed away last year, um, he played the fiddle for years and years. Yeah, so what was his there, name? His name was Tom Conway and a really lovely man and he really loved music but by the time I kind of met him he had really stopped playing he didn't play it too much I do remember him playing the fiddle he played it very low on his chest and he would move the the fiddle instead of the bow arm you know the way that the old folk players kind of do that um so the bow arm would stay at the one angle and the fiddle would turn to be played um so that's how he played but I don't really remember the tunes he played or the style that he had I would have been too young um to hear him playing and then as he got older he didn't really play much at all um, but but that's probably how it came to me and how you might say it's in my blood. Is that violin still in the family that he played or one of his violins? No, I don't have his violin, but um, he played also the button accordion. And uh, he gave that to us about three weeks before he died. And we said to him, no, 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 you'll have to hold on to that now because you might play another few tunes. And he was like, no, I definitely won't. And uh, so we left it anyway because we felt, you know, no, we can't take it. But now we have the, the little button accordion. So I have that from him. Do you play on that at all? I don't play the accordion at all, but we keep it in the kitchen. So I have two children, um, an eight-year-old and a six-year-old. So they'll pick it up and try and find a few tunes on it. They they would have a lot of traditional tunes in their head. So maybe one of those will be an accordion player, but we'll have to wait and see. <laughs> so your direction as a musician started with this uh, exposure to the traditional music. And uh, then you began to look at what we would call classical music. Mm-hmm. And I think these um, classifications are problematic yeah. at best. Yeah. Uh, but for most people would think of the classical repertoire, the Western European repertoire. Yeah. So how did that all come about? Um, I think when I was about eight or nine, um, I actually originally played other instruments. So I played tin whistle and piano and banjo, which is quite close to the fiddle. So when I was just about to play the fiddle and maybe playing it for a few months but probably not terribly good yet Um, I saw on the TV a little girl playing who was about maybe 12 a few years older than I was and she was playing um, Sarasate Introduction in Tarantella maybe or one of these incredible um, incredibly virtuosic pieces and I just stopped on the spot because I'd never seen anyone playing above first position on the fiddle and I didn't know anything about classical music and I said to my dad that's what I want to do (laughs) that's it so that was really a pivotal moment in my life and my father then brought me to different fiddle teachers in the region that we live in uh, violin teachers and asked them you know could you take Zoe as a student and a lot of them said well she's a bit old to be starting classical music she really should have been starting this a few years ago and she's going to be behind everyone at that age and blah 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 and he said but she's a very good musician like she already is a wonderful player but they didn't really listen to him and actually lots of people said no we we can't take her we won't take her and eventually luckily I found a really fantastic um, teacher called Sheila Thompson who was quite um, uh, you know adventurous in her way of teaching and um, she saw immediately the potential that I had and she actually taught me every day um, when I was that age maybe around nine or ten she took me every day for a lesson for three or four years so you can imagine 
the jump that happened in my in my music and um, I became just as good as all the other 12 year olds and 13 year olds and and then I, I kind of soared on in classical music and um, so it's just very interesting to me that so many things have to align in your life in order for any of this to have happened and that was one of the many, many things that happened to allow me to become a classical musician as well as a traditional one. Um, but, you know, I, I'm so glad that that happened and it really allowed me to, to lead the life that I'm leading at the moment. Well, this is a subject near and dear to my heart. Yeah. I sometimes have to watch when I do interviews. I just don't go into this territory all the time. <laughs> yeah. But this idea of destiny. Yeah. That uh, what appears to be a, a random set of circumstances does not feel that way often mm -hmm, to us. Mm -hmm. That everything, all the stars had to be lined exactly. in a certain way for these things yeah. to happen. And that brings up, you know, ideas of reincarnation or something, especially when you have the, the people who are so skilled, and not just with technical skill, but a deep understanding of what music itself is. Yeah. And they just seem to get it. Yeah. And other people could play their whole lives and, uh, and, and have a wonderful experience playing music, yeah. but not have that. Yeah. And that's rare. And uh, when it comes along, I think it puzzles all of us, you know, the kind mm. of Mozart. Yeah. Uh, well, I definitely agree with the stars having to be in a line. And I don't think it's a coincidence because there are just so many things that have to have happened for me to be able to be the fiddle player that I am now and uh, to be able to play both styles and, you know, to have the nice fiddle that I have and everything else. I mean, it's just, it's endless. It's, you know, I'm not talking seven stars, I'm talking 700. It's just seemed to be that everything had to work for me to be able to do this and, and did work. And maybe having that understanding, almost a, a kind of modesty to understand that these forces are at play protects you from the dark side of this yeah. instrument. Yeah. The, the hours, the, the tremendous requirements and the competitive aspects that yeah. often, I think, um, play a, a negative role in some musicians mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. have played for many years. Yeah. Uh, the audition system, all the things that come with the territory. Yeah, definitely. And um, I'm... I was never uh, very confident as a child. I never thought that I was absolutely brilliant or anything like that. Um, but I, I always had that underlying kind of happiness with playing the fiddle, that this is just what I'm supposed to do. And, and that's it. So I never felt, even though there's lots of things in life that I love and I know I would enjoy doing, I never think for a minute that that's what I should be doing. <laughs> I'm just meant to be a fiddle player and meant to play a fiddle and meant to play the fiddle I am playing and the lovely bow I have as well and um, it's it's more than coincidence it has to be that's what I feel and that gives me confidence when I play so that helps with nerves and stress and competition and all of that it just more or less eliminates it because I feel well here I am this is what I'm supposed to do so this is all I can do and uh, and and it really helps yeah, a friend of mine says it's like uh Somebody comes in and says, who wants to be the president or who wants to do something or who wants to play violin as a soloist? And certain people just raise their hands yeah, for yeah, some reason. Yeah. And then that's why they do it and somebody else doesn't do it. But uh, well, you've mentioned this violin several times that you mm -hmm, have now. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to hear that story. But how about the first violin that came into your hands that 
sort of made a real impression on you mm -hmm. that opened up the fact that this was a partnership, right? There was your skill and your passion, but there was something else there that somebody else had put into this piece of wood and these strings. And uh, when did you pick up a violin that seemed to have its own personality? Well, they all have their own personality and I knew that from very young and I feel even the very basic violins have qualities to them and I enjoyed playing every violin I played. Um, but none of them compared to the one that I play at the minute. Um, they were all very basic, very low level violins. But I was very happy playing them and I wasn't even looking for a better one or it never really occurred to me that there might be a better one. And then uh, one day I was at a friend's house, Jim McKillop, a um, wonderful violin maker, and he plays really beautiful fiddle as well. And uh, he's also a composer, man of many talents. And I was in his house and I walked into the room and there were, you know, as usual, about 40 violins. And he's like, OK, Zoe, here you go. Try this and try this and try this and try this. And I was actually only there for a bow rehair. I wasn't looking for a fiddle. And uh, the moment I walked in, I saw the violin sitting in the window and I said, well, that is the most beautiful violin I've ever seen. I totally and utterly fell in love with it. And uh, he gave me another fiddle and another fiddle and another fiddle and he never handed me the one that was on the window, the one that I had seen straight away. And um, anyway, he left to go and rehear the bow and I picked up this other fiddle and I played it and I totally and utterly fell in love with it. I just thought it's the most incredible fiddle I've ever played. And I quickly put it back. And then I was thinking, well, why did he not show me that one? Obviously, it belongs to somebody else and it's not for sale. This is what I was thinking. So I never even said it to him when he came back. Um, I got the bow. I drove home and I went into my parents' house in tears. <laughs> and I said, I'm after playing this violin and it's amazing. I have to have it. And I don't even know, is it for sale? I don't know how much it costs. You know, I, I, I don't know, will he sell it? Am I going to be able to buy it? And my father said, drive straight back up to him and tell him that you played it and that you want to have it and can you buy it and see how much it is and then we'll see what we can do, you know, if we can afford it and so on and so on. So um, I went straight back up um, to Jim's and I said, look, I'm after playing that violin and I just totally fell in love with it and is there any way you could sell it to me? And he's like, oh! Well, not that it belongs to someone. He had bought it from an auction and he had somebody in mind for the violin, but they hadn't seen it yet. And I said, well, then you could give them any violin. They're never going to know what they're missing out on. So I was very, very lucky that I was able to persuade him to sell it to me and uh, and be able to buy it. And obviously I had to take out a loan and do all of that. And I was quite young, maybe 18 or something like that, and uh, managed to buy the fiddle. And I just love it. I still love it. And I have played really good violins, you know, for, you know, yourself, 200,000, half a million, a million, 18 million. It just jumps, the prices just jump through the roof. Um, but I, I wouldn't change for mine. It's just so lovely. Tell me about as much as you know about the maker or anything. So it's a Max Muller violin. He He's from Amsterdam and um, he passed away and his son also helped with the business and he made violins as well. Um, so I don't know how many. I think there were probably around 40 violins that the older Max Muller made that were around the same kind of quality as mine. Um, 
but you know you know yourself there's one violin that sounds amazing and the next one maybe misses something here and there but um for that's the one that I think I was meant to have and I just love it what year it's 1933 I'll have to have a party in a few years for the violin <laughs> yeah Aaron Marshall a very fine fiddler yeah. Appalachian style fiddler uh, had a birthday party for her violin. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, really. And I think she then it became a yearly event. But people would bring little things to hang on the violin, oh, or so they'd write nice. a little tune for it. Isn't that nice? It was really nice. And and you think about the 1933. That uh, was a difficult time. Yeah. All over Europe and certainly the United States, other parts of the world, the depression, and that brings that idea of um, what music really can mean what a gift it is and it's outside of those other concerns we have and yeah. worries about money and yeah. um, survival of the body but then there's this thing called the soul I think and yeah. and these are the tools that we use to come to terms with what that thing is the I soul know. I love this idea that you saw it and and you knew by looking at it um, because there are so many beautiful violins out there if you simply looked at their wood yeah you know the beautiful maple they really can be stunning. And there's something in the shape of violin, even though they can be so slightly different than another violin. Violin makers have taught me this. Yeah. That drawing that shape or being able to see it. Yeah. And say, that's a different violin than this one. Yeah. Where almost anyone else would see six of them and really could almost tell no difference. Yeah. So it was, it was a visual There call. was a visual clue from that violin that that I would like the sound of it. And I don't know where I learned that or how I knew that, but I knew. I mean, I suppose I'm playing violin my whole life and I've been picking up everyone's fiddle, so maybe I've been learning. Um, but I didn't need to to play it. I knew it was going to sound amazing, and it did sound amazing. So um, that is interesting. And also another time, speaking of the eye and the ability of the human eye, what it can pick up, I had to play this piece in a schlacken that we played tonight and it's two violinists so I'm supposed to represent the traditional, more traditional style and then a more classical style is the other soloist and I got to play it in Germany with a very brilliant orchestra and the leader of the orchestra and we went into a little room and we were about to rehearse and he took out his violin and I said oh my god I have seen that violin in a poster <laughs> and I, I really had and I knew by looking at it it, it was a really fantastic Guarneri violin worth a fortune and uh, and I, I nearly fell over when he took it out of the case and he kind of he got a shock with my reaction because I think he was hoping that I might notice or that you know we didn't have to know about the value of his instrument um, but there you go it's incredible that the eye can notice these kind of things in such a slight difference which really speaks to the fact that these are such remarkable works of art yeah Absolutely. You know, and uh, that there's a visual component to them that's that's outstanding and, yeah. and and very ancient. And some people have said, and some designers, that the really good violins seem to um, um, go along with the golden mean. There's certain geometrical proportions yes. that produce the sound. Exactly. That's remarkable. And there's been a lot of speculation on that of course yeah. you know and people have experimented yeah. but that makes it. sense because that's why it would resonate with your eye the way a flower would or the way a beautiful face would it's to do with ratio and a good maker can see that and make that and that's maybe what creates beautiful sound um so 
because I certainly am untrained. Uh, I, I wouldn't know that the difference between that many fiddles, but somehow I knew that that was a really good one. Listen now to a concerto for two violins, featuring violinists Zoe Conway and Helena Wood. The music was composed by Bill Whalen and is titled Inislochen, the name of a small island off the west coast of Ireland. The movement is called Evening Cayley and conjures up an image of a setting sun and the people of the island gathering together for a party.
Do you have perfect pitch or what people would call perfect pitch? I think I have what people call perfect pitch. In other words, I can I can sing an A at 440 or 441 or 442. So I have a very good memory for an A and an E, which are the upper two strings of the violin. But my little brother, Sean, um, he really has perfect pitch and he can hear pitch in everything and he hears it instantly. So it takes me a few seconds to say, yes, that's definitely a B flat. I have to kind of check it in my head. But Sean, he just hears everything immediately there's a b flat that's a c sharp in in the fan in there is a d flat and so on and so on so um so actually i thought i had perfect pitch but now i think i just have a good memory <laughs> that's a question or a, a a puzzle for some people to figure out you know where, where, does <laughs> yeah. that, where does that come from yeah and listening to music at such an early age mm-hmm. and where the mind is so the plasticity of the, of yeah. the brain is so yeah. remarkable they say there's a very high percentage of Chinese musicians that have perfect pitch. Um, there was an article on uh, National Public Radio about it, which is really quite fascinating. And they think it's because of the way their language is sung. Yes, it's pitched. Yeah. yeah. And mm-hmm. so, at you know, such an early age, they're hearing pitch all the time. And they often have this remarkable ability. That makes total sense. Which gives us a segue into being Irish. Yes. What What does that bring to that? I mean, the Irish, of course, my background is Irish, too. I'm McHugh, McGraw, Quinn. But uh, as much as I'm I'm fascinated by mythology, and the Irish have such a rich mythology, mm-hmm. and the violin itself has such a rich mythology mm-hmm. associated with it. So anything you want to say about uh, being Irish and what that brings to this experience of playing the violin? Well, um that's a very long question or it could potentially be a very long answer but it's another one of those things that um make me very uh, content to be an Irish traditional fiddle player um because I have such respect for the traditional music from Ireland and how good it really is and the fact that I am Irish um really gives me confidence in that um and I feel that the traditional music from Ireland is as good as traditional the best of traditional music from anywhere in the world and and as developed and um as interesting and as beautiful and I just think that there's such richness in the tradition here that's quite incredible and I'm a traditional musician my whole life and I have thousands of tunes but there are still thousands more that I haven't heard and haven't learned and and have to still do. So it's seemingly endless, really, Irish music. It just never stops. And uh, for me, that's quite incredible, considering that probably a lot of it has been lost. I just, it just, it's astounding how how vast the tradition is here in Ireland. I love the poem by William Butler Yeats, The Fiddler of Dooney. Mm -hmm. And and he juxtaposition or... Juxtaposes. Yeah, juxtapose. Thank you. I was trying to get the (laughs) verb out of there. Uh, The book of prayers that the cousin's reading, Mm -hmm. the priest, and his book of songs he got at the Sligo Fair. (laughs) And this idea that um, I often think that playing these tunes, because tonight we heard you perform, Mm -hmm. and you performed a very complex piece of music with different movements. Yes. Where these tunes in the tradition are often, they're short, they just keep repeating over and over. Now the variations, 
become what you can do and and where the creativity can come in. Yeah. But you're still just playing a fairly short melody yeah. over and over. And it has to me, um, often I have that sense of the kind of the prayer wheels that they'll have in some Tibetan temple where they just go by them and they just spin them. Yeah. And the idea isn't, isn't just a totally frivolous thing to do or meaningless thing. They deeply believe that the spinning of those wheels makes the world better. Yeah. And I somehow have that feeling from people who love this tradition that the playing of these tunes, which often is the most ephemeral thing we could do, mm -hmm. nobody's recording it. Yeah. It's in the moment. Yeah. It's here and gone. Yeah. Uh, but yet it seems to be vitally important that it's done. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It really is. And um, the tradition, it's so wonderful at the minute because it's so well looked after. And there are so many young people playing it to such a high standard um, that that's just wonderful, you know, that it, that it, it, it's, it has the respect that it deserves within musicians in Ireland. Um, one of the main uh, things that annoy me in my life is the fact that many people in Ireland don't have that respect or that knowledge of traditional music. So when... My my impression is that when people come from abroad and they come to Ireland to see the culture and to, to understand the music and to be part of it and they hear what they hear on the radio, which is like you hear everywhere else in the world, um, except some like particular countries, um, and they don't hear Irish music. And if they do hear Irish music, it's in a set up environment. It's not actually what we what we want them to be hearing. So it's one of the things I think that could be improved in Ireland and uh, it's a real pity that most people in Ireland actually have no idea of this wealth that's here and uh, it's ch totally over their heads and they never in their ordinary everyday lives have a chance to to experience it or interact with it in any way. Um, and, and when you bring people into that, that that don't know it, they're just like, oh my God, this is amazing. You know, if they go to a session, a genuine session where people are there for the love of the music and to share the music and to play, um, they just, they, they really, they really find it incredible. And actually just last week I was in Donegal and there was a Cayley where people are all dancing and there was a man there from Manchester and he, he had come to learn Irish language. It was an Irish language week and uh, I happened to be dancing beside him for one of the dances and he just looked at me and he said, this is amazing. <laughs> it's like, it's like total incredible moment for him to realise that this whole thing was happening that he never knew about and he was now part of and uh, the whole world was opening up for him. And, and it is amazing, you know, and it would be great if people all over the world could, could experience it, but in particular Irish people in Ireland. Last time I was here, mm. uh, the uh, what, was, what is it called? The the Celtic dragon? No, what's it? Oh, the tiger. Celtic tiger. I should know. That's this. the Let one. Let me try it again. Yeah, okay. <laughs> the last time I was here, the uh, Celtic tiger was was roaring or whatever yes. tigers do. Yeah. And uh, so there was a lot going on, and yeah. Ireland was changing, and infrastructure was getting built. All this stuff was going yeah. on. Then it you, then there was this collapse. And all the shenanigans that have been going on around the world, the Goldman Sachs, all the little financial games that people have been playing yeah. came to light. Was that, in fact, a good thing for the musical tradition to kind of turn back the money machine a little bit and allow something that's been around a long time that has sustained people culturally and spiritually 
Because I sometimes think money is not as good a thing as we think it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anything you want to say, as a young person particularly? Yeah, well, I totally agree. I mean, nothing benefited from the Celtic Tiger, really, in Ireland. Um, but the main problem is, uh, for, for people who are my age, who are exceptionally good musicians and uh, probably a lot better than me um, there are many 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 of them that I know who are my age that I grew up with who weren't able to continue on the path of music and had to actually get a job and pay bills and do all of that you know and um, I suppose I was just lucky that I was able to make a a, a living throughout the Celtic Tiger and, and until now and that it that was a big problem and it probably is. Like there are many, many people out there who I would love to be professional musicians and they they, they can't afford it. Um, so that's one huge downside of the Celtic Tiger. But for traditional music, because it is quite underground in Ireland, as I mentioned, it, uh, not really part of mainstream at all. It meant that the Celtic Tiger didn't bring up that you know that tradition at all it just stayed underground and stayed being played week in week out and all the young people still continued going to lessons week in week out and so it didn't have a massive effect on the tradition thank god and and it still thrives in that you know kind of niche um environment so we were talking about your violin Mm -hmm. tell me about your bow how it came to you and how important is this bow for you um, well, I play a Noel Burke bow, finest bow maker, and uh, and renowned the world over, really, and very sought after, particularly for classical music. Um, but a few years ago, when I was, I suppose, 18, 19, around that age, I wanted to get a nicer bow and upgrade the bow that I had. And I went to a bow maker, and I actually don't remember his name right now, but um, I played this bow and I played another bow, and I was like, yeah, I like that, and I like that, but I don't like this, and I was very particular about what I wanted. And he said, you know what, you want an old brick bow, off you go go and contact him, that's going to be the bow for you. And I just said, great, okay. So I contacted Noel Burke and uh, luckily was able to get a bow from him. And uh, I told him what I wanted. I had all the information of the weight and the, you know, the feel and everything and, and, and had the fiddle also and kind of explained everything to him what I would like. And he made me the most amazing bow you've ever played. It's just gorgeous and uh, one of the pieces I play is called the hangman's reel and it has a lot of the flying staccato going across all the four strings a bit like the part in the Mendelssohn violin concerto if you know it it's the same technique classical technique and uh, so it was very important that this bow would be able to do that and it does it's just like magic it just flies off the strings within proper control it has beautiful bounce but it also has very um, heavy um, kind of weight in it for slow airs, which I also have to be able to do. So it does everything. It's absolutely wonderful. And he knows I love it because I keep telling him. <laughs> um, but it is it is a wonderful bow. And again, it's all the things coming together. It's the bow, it's the hair, it's the rosin, it's the strings, it's the violin and it's the player. So And it's the whole experience that I've had in my life. Um, that that brings me to where I am today, and uh, and I I don't forget that I really love all of those elements. Do you use one set of strings, or do you? Uh, I I tend to have different strings for different my A strings different than my D string. I mean different makers. Yes. 
anything just short. well for me i use the didario helicor violin strings and the reason for that is that they have a very fast response and most of what i play is very fast intricate traditional music and they have to have that fast response so the classical type of strings which i find very heavy and slow to respond really doesn't work for me um so that's the type i use but the e string is an extra one that i put on it's a kaplan didario kaplan and and it's called a non-whistling e string and it's really nice. We talked to Fan Dow at Diodario, and he designed that string. Really? And he explained the the, uh, the chemical that he uses, a little powder. That's oh, a, that's really, so I no amazing. Yeah, there's a whole, well, whole he, thinking behind, you know, why it doesn't whistle. Well, you can tell him I said thank you because it really makes a difference on my violin. That's wonderful. So we, and then I wanted to ask you about yeah. your children and that balancing the personal life with being a touring musician? How does that all work? Well, when I was expecting, um, we suddenly, even though we were planning it, <laughs> we suddenly thought, oh my God, what are we going to do? Because my husband is also a professional musician. Um, so we said, well, we can't really be touring full time around the world and we're going to have to change our kind of our way of earning an income so we began to think about what we could do more locally at home in Ireland and we were thinking well we can certainly teach and we can certainly play concerts close by so that's what we did and kind of very slowly built it up and uh, went back right back to really no work for quite a while and then started to um, bring in a bit of teaching and a bit of local concerts. And then maybe about four years after my oldest child was born, um, we started to be able to do more and more concerts abroad and start to dip back into what we had been doing before. So we had quite a long gap there of not really performing so much. And, uh, and then my mother, luckily, um, helps quite a lot with minding the children, which make, makes it much easier for me to be able to go maybe for four nights and then come home. Um, so that's pretty much what we've been doing ever since. And we maybe travel abroad 12 or so times a year uh, for four or five nights and then home again. So um, it seems to be a very nice balance. And the thing that I like the most is that I generally pick my children up from school every day and do the homework with them every day and cook the dinner every day. And that's a luxury, actually, in at the moment um, in Ireland in particular. There's quite a lot of people who can't do that and both parents have to be working all the time. So um, it is a balance and it's not easy and we you know we, we're striving to um, do the best that we can for the children for example I'm doing the interview now after the concert instead of doing it tomorrow in the daytime when I'll be at the playground with the children <laughs> so you have to kind of you know do what you can do as much as you can but not try and take away from from home time um, so it's quite a nice balance and we're really enjoying it at the moment and I'm going to speculate here mm -hmm. that just your general at least the sense I have, and we've only just met, yeah. so the sense of the kind of person you are, you look at things that come with that sense of destiny again, Yeah, that this is not a problem or or a limitation to be resented. Yeah, It's a it's a different thing yeah. that you have to say yes to. Yeah. And in saying yes to it, it may, in fact, enhance your creativity. Yeah. I often think our limitations are the things that allow us to be more creative. That's absolutely right. Yeah. And it changes your um, your perspective. So we 
at the time that we stopped touring, we had gotten to the point where we were like, oh my God, we have to go to Germany. Oh, we have to drive for four hours. And are we going to get food? And what's the audience going to be like? And oh, there's only a hundred people. And okay. And now we're in the place where when we head over to Germany or France or wherever to do a concert, it's a holiday. (laughs) So it's just lovely. And we get to spend time as a couple and we get to go out for dinner and we get to go and play together. And it has really changed the perspective um, to being a total treat instead of being a, a total chore, which it had become. And so it was interesting how that, that all worked out. And like we really wanted children. It's the thing that we wanted ever since we met. Um, and we're so blessed to have them and we're really enjoying it and trying to make the most of it. And, you know, incorporating it into the life that we have as professional musicians. What are their names? Owen and Fiona. Uh-huh. Yeah. So the last question, mm-hmm. that moment, and I've, I have asked this of a number of musicians. I once got to play in the crypt of Canterbury Cathedral. Wow. Now, you know, just the idea of that, but it was the crypt, which is down in the oldest part of the cathedral. Yeah. And of course, it's all stone, so the acoustics were to die for. Yeah. And uh, so a memory that I will never forget. But sometimes that magic can be either someone you're playing with or a particular audience, there's something happens. So one or two of those memories about this journey you've been on that you would look back and say, these are milestones, these are markers. It's funny that I don't really carry that much of those memories with me because I actually do so many concerts and I really take enjoyment out of them all. Um, And I try to enjoy them all as much as possible and not to be too nervous or anything like that. And there's just so many times where I loved it and I'm just loving playing and loving playing with people. Last week and the week before, I could give you examples. But a few things that stick out were when I was maybe 16 and I got to play with Steve Cooney, who's an incredible guitar player from Australia, who now lives in Ireland. And... uh, we, we were just playing some slip jigs and he's such an exceptional musician and maybe it's the first time that I got to play with such an exceptional musician that it really stands out as one of those moments where I'm like, this is it's like uh, being in heaven. It was that feeling of total nothing else in the world except the tunes that we're just playing at the minute. Um, so that's one memory that stands out. And another one is maybe playing before a concert. I got to play in a beautiful hall in Prague with an orchestra, I think it was, when I was only a teenager, a youth orchestra. And I went out and just played for 40 minutes all on my own with nobody else in the hall. And it was one of those incredible, really tall um, concert halls with lots of different tiers and the acoustics were to die for. And I just played away to myself. And uh, that was one of the highlights of, of performing, really even though there was nobody there. Um, And oh, so many examples of playing with brilliant musicians. Um, Tomorrow night here at the Clifton Arts Festival, I'm playing with Marcino O'Connor and Dona Lunny. And they're two of my musical heroes and I'm now in a band with them, um, which is quite unbelievable. And one of the highlights was getting to play with them in my own town of Dundalk in a really nice little venue called the Spirit Store. And I just thought, there will never be a gig as good as that in my life because it was so incredibly good, you know. Um, so there's a few examples of, of, of moments in music that I really loved. 
Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate you taking the time. You're very welcome. Late at night after a, a marvelous concert. Oh, thank you. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For more information about this podcast and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. We wish to thank the organizers of the Clifton Arts Festival for all their help and would encourage you to attend the festival if you ever get the chance. The whole town gets into the act, and there are plenty of concerts, lectures, and art shows to keep you busy. Also check out the Sky Road, a winding road that runs its way along the edge of the bay until it reaches the Atlantic Ocean. The views are stunning. And if you need a place to stay, give the Clifton Bay Lodge a call. The owner is a lovely woman who grew up in France, but after a visit to Clifton, she decided to make Connemara her home. So be careful, because you may do the same.